Thank you, Todd. Um, so like Todd said, we're starting in this uh, new series in the book of Jonah, where we're going to be covering uh, episode by episode each week for the next uh, four or five weeks, uh, this story that takes place smack dab in the middle of what we now call the Old Testament, unfolding the life of this uh, prophet, this man of God, and what God is doing in his life. Now, um, but before we get into it, uh, I, I do just want to open up this morning just acknowledging, uh, many of us know there's some uh, pretty horrific uh, news in the world uh, happening uh, in Israel, conflict between uh, Palestinians and the Israelis, um, and there are many lives that have been lost in the last 48 hours or so. And so um, I just want to pray peace um, and invite uh, the presence of the Lord uh, into that region of the world. Um, I feel like we'd be remiss um, just to, to head on into teaching God's word without acknowledging that there's, there's stuff happening in the world that grieves God's heart right now. And uh, as God's people, we need to be those who, um, who grieve with God with what grieves his heart and, uh, and pray for the peace of God um, in, in places and situations where there's uh, desperate brokenness. So um, I'll pray and then, uh, and then we'll dive into, into our series. Sound good? Okay. You guys can pray with me. Uh, Lord, um, we know that um, we know that what's happening in Israel, Palestine right now grieves your heart. Um, we know that um, violence and war um, are not how it's supposed to be, that you had a good design for your creation, and we've invited sin and bro- brokenness and death and suffering. And so we, um, we just lament. Um, we acknowledge there's, like, there's real pain. And it's real, it really is evil. Um, and uh, we pray for peace. We pray for um, civilians on both sides of the border to be spared um, and protected. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd cover, um, cover that region of the world and bring, uh, bring peace. Bring peace in a way that doesn't seem humanly possible uh, more quickly than it seems humanly possible, Lord. So we pray for wisdom for leaders. We pray for reasonableness. We pray for um, a, a commitment to, uh, to work towards peace. And uh, so we pray for that and uh, ask just for your hand over the whole situation. Uh, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, diving into our series of Jonah, uh, we're going to be, like I said, covering episode by episode uh, through this book. And this is a fascinating book. It's one of my favorite books of scripture to think about, uh, not only because of the themes that are brought out, which are challenging and interesting, uh, they're provocative, they go right into the heart, uh, but also because of the way the writer of this book has structured it to kind of tease out those themes. I think the most accurate way to describe the genre of literature that we're looking at in the book of Jonah is satire, over and over again, there's these situational ironies, which as my English teacher wife would tell you, is when the reader knows something that the characters don't know. And those ironies bring out these themes that are close to the heart of God. We see over and over again, unexpected people, soft to God's heart, people that the reader, especially an ancient Hebrew reader, would think these are the people that are going to resist God, and yet they're the ones that are open to God. While the character, the central character, Jonah, who's the prophet, the man of God, the one that's supposed to be the conduit of God's grace and goodness and truth into the world is the one that's resistant and hard-hearted to God all along. And in the end, it becomes this scathing critique of religious hypocrisy. But more importantly, it's an invitation for us to see in Jonah's story, our story. 
to ask ourselves, are we going to have our hearts aligned with what's close to God's heart? Are we going to have compassion on the people that God has compassion on? Are we going to have a big, expansive view of God's mercy and God's grace? Or are we going to get stuck into our own predetermined ideas of who God is supposed to love and supposed to be for, or not supposed to love and not supposed to be for? It's an invitation for us to see in Jonah's story our story. And so here's the big idea that we're going to, that we're going to tackle. And I guess the caveat to all that is, if you've grown up in and around the church, there's a, there's a Sunday story version, a Sunday school version of the story of Jonah that turns out to not be a very good representation of the story of Jonah as it's actually told. It looks great on a felt board with some nice character pieces and there's like a whale and there's all great stuff that ends up not being what we're not going to do here is we're not going to spend time trying to convince you how it's actually possible to survive three nights in the belly of a basking shark or something like that. In fact, there's, that's not the point of the story at all. The, the point of the story of Jonah is, again, it's a story that's supposed to draw us to see our our story. And in fact, there's actually, within scholars that hold wholeheartedly to the idea that scripture is true in everything that it teaches and come, and come to it as God's word, fully authoritative in our lives, within people in that camp, there's good faith debate about whether or not to what degree we're supposed to take this historically. Jonah was a true historical figure. We meet him in second, the book of 2 Kings. But there's good, is this something that actually happened in Jonah's life? Or is this an ancient Hebrew writer using a real historical figure to tell a story that's supposed to provoke us? We don't know. There's good faith debate. There's good reasons to, to fall on either side. We're not even going to dive into that. Because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is for us to see in Jonah what God wants to see in our lives. And so here's the big idea of the story. The big idea is that each of us has bigger blind spots of sin than any of us realize. We're right there in the boat with Jonah. And yet God loves each of us more than we can even imagine beyond our wildest imagination, more unconditionally, more fully, more personally than our wildest imagination. And God wants to use each of us for our good and the world's flourishing and his glory even beyond our wildest dreams. Our blind spots are deeper and more real than any of us realize at any given moment. God loves us more fully and unconditionally than our wildest imagination. And God wants to use us in ways that go beyond our wildest dreams, stuck in our blind spots as we are. That's God's invitation to Jonah. It's his invitation to our life. So we're going to begin in this first episode of the story in the first few verses. We'll start in Jonah chapter 1. We'll read up to verse 6. Uh, we'll pray. I'll invite the Spirit of God to speak to us. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll, I'll read. I'll invite the Spirit of God to speak to us in prayer once more, and then uh, we'll dive in to see what God has to say to us in this first episode of God's story where we see Jonah the runaway. So Jonah chapter 1, verses, uh, verses 1, we'll go to verse 6. Here is what God's word says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. 
So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. We'll stop there. This is God's word for us this morning, written by an ancient Hebrew writer in their own language and style and context, but inspired by the Spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray right now. Let's take a moment of pause and ask the Spirit of God that inspired this text to open up our hearts right now. Would you guys pray with me? Uh, Lord, we... um, We thank you that your word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It takes us to you. uh, It takes us to ourselves as a a mirror to see what's really going on in our hearts. And uh, in the process, you're inviting us to respond to your grace, to just internalize deep in our souls the love of God for us. And so we pray that that would happen this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you awaken our hearts as we open up your word? Would you open up our hearts? And right now, let's just um, have a moment of pause. I've got our sweet kiddos singing next door. Um, And let's just ask God, uh, God, would you speak? So whatever words make sense to you, um, whatever whatever you want to say to God, or just have a moment of quiet, let's just have a moment where we invite the God of the universe uh, to speak to us from his word right now. Let's just have a moment of pause to do that. God, thanks that you love us. Uh, We say we love you too. And uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know what you're into, and I'm not here to make (laughs) judgments of any kind. You get down with your bad self. But my imagination would be that none of us, if given the choice, would choose to have rubber tubes shoved up our nose unless... There's a reason for the rubber tube being shoved up our nose. The Jones family has been wiped out with the back-to-school plague over the last couple of weeks. Is anyone else in that boat? Just colds and sicknesses and you name it, poo-poo platter of things keeping you up at night. It's the back-to-school plague, and we're about to have our third baby, and I'm thinking about the baby coming in and what the baby getting sick, and remembering what it was like when my kids were sick for the first time. Uh, When you have a baby, as many of us here know, a, a baby that gets a cold has no ability to blow his or her nose, right? For many cognitive and developmental reasons, the uh, ability to understand what it is to blow your nose in the first place is meaningless, so you could hold a tissue up to their nose. All they would experience is mom or dad smothering me with a tissue over my nose and mouth, right? It's meaningless. The ability to actually, like, muscular development function blow out of your nose and control that it's only coming out of my nose, that's something that doesn't come on until later development, for many reasons. You can't blow your nose as a baby. So if your your baby is uh, is congested, having a hard time breathing, that's making it having a hard time sleep. One of the things parents do, one of the things that Beck and I did, is we had the little bulb. Anyone else use the little bulb? It looks like a little rubber onion with like a little tube coming out of it. And you squeeze it. You put the rubber tube up the nose, and you get some suction and some nice uh, relief coming out of the sinuses. Right. Here's the thing, though. Our kids, any baby, would have absolutely no way of understanding what's happening to them as mom or dad is sticking the rubber tube up their nose. Free of context, without any story or experience to define what's going on, all it feels like is mom and dad hovering over them while they're in this very vulnerable position and jamming a rubber tube up their nose. 
And then all of a sudden, sweet relief, but of course the memory's not there quite enough to remember it for next time, so every single time it's just a traumatic fight to try to, you know, sweet little baby get their nose blowed, their nose uh, free of some snot. Here's the point. The point is a quote from the philosopher Alistair McIntyre that I've quoted before. I'll quote again. I'll quote many, many times over the course of my life so that those of you who know me well will probably get really sick of me talking about it. But I think it is such an important frame of reference for understanding our lives. He said it like this. He said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart. In other words, without context, there's no meaning. We don't understand what's going on. We don't know what we're supposed to do. We have to first understand what story we're a part of. And life with Jesus gives us unique resources for our real need for meeting, not only because we believe it is the true story that matches reality, but also because it gives us a uniquely resilient way of navigating the ups and downs of life precisely because of the story that Jesus invites us to live into, the true story that Jesus invites us to live into. Because for followers of Jesus, meaning in the ups and downs of life hinges on a question that is at the beating heart of the book of Jonah and the beating heart of the first episode of Jonah's story that we're tackling today. It's the question, what is God up to in my life? What is God up to? What is the context? What's the story in which my story takes part in? What is this context, the story in which this particular stage of my life takes part in? What's the story in which the circumstances of my life today are taking part in? What am I to make of it? What is God up to in my life? Because throughout the story of Jonah, it's crystal clear that God is up to something in Jonah's life. I said before, Jonah's story is, at one level, a really scathing critique of religious hypocrisy of the prophet of God who actually has a hard heart towards God. On the other hand, it's a story of God being up to something in that hard-hearted prophet's life. It's a story of God doing something in his life, inviting him into something, uh, drawing him in to see something about the character of God and the story that his life takes place in. Because the story of Jonah is actually a microcosm of the story of every single one of us. It's really interesting the way the author has arranged Jonah's story. Jonah's story follows the same beats of the story of Israel. And in fact, that's, that's intentional. The, story, the author is drawing us to see, here's a story of one, one Israelite. And actually, in that story, we're supposed to see the whole story of God's people, what God is doing with his people. And you actually see those themes in the first few verses here, the first six verses. There's these beats. There's uh, the initiation of God and design and intent of God. There's the response of, of the, the man of God, the person who runs from God, tries to make life work on his own terms rather than with God. And then God's gracious pursuit and those, those themes that come up in these first 
six verses happen over again. They cycle through and they're the big picture story of all of Jonah. And then if you zoomed out even further, it's actually, those are the three beats, the big picture story of God's dealing with Israel. And if you zoomed out even further, that's actually Israel is replaying the story of all of humankind. And so this is Russian nesting egg of the same story or the same themes played out in the story over and over and over again. And I think this is what the writers of scripture want us to see in that repetition, in that story within a story within a story within a story playing the same beats over and over and over again. Because at one level, you could come to this and say, yeah, yeah, I know that. I, 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 get, I know that. I've heard that before. I came to church once. I heard it. On the other hand, I think what the writers of Scripture are trying to get us to see is that spiritual maturity growing to become the kind of women and men that God has made us to be, that we're becoming in Jesus. Spiritual maturity is not as much fueled by learning new things so much as it is fueled by internalizing the most important thing. The story of the gracious heart of God towards flawed sinners like you and me. And it's that story that the author of Jonah wants us to get deep down into our souls as we wrestle with the same questions that God is bringing Jonah to wrestle with. So, what does Jonah's story tell us about our story? What does it tell us about what God is up to? Well, these first few verses that we're um, taking a look at that, re, that are kind of a microcosm of the bigger story of Jonah, bigger story of all of us, my story and your story, this passage is structured around two buts. And believe you me, I am resisting with every ounce of the inner 13-year-old in me to resist making childish jokes about the two butts of this story. Uh, and now I'm just telling you so that you can imagine your own jokes about the two butts in this story. There are two butts in the story of Jonah of Amittai. Anyway, uh, but two butts. And in those two butts, we get a picture of what God's up to. We get a, a picture of the story that you and I are a part of, the story that God is working out in every season of our lives. Because the first but is about Jonah, but Jonah. The second but is about God's response, but God. And so the first but, the reaction of Jonah, is a mirror to see ourselves. And the second but, the action of God, is a spotlight on the character and purposes of God in our lives. So that's how we're going to spend the rest of the time. We're going to start with that mirror to see ourselves in the first but, this response of Jonah. We'll start there. The mirror to see ourselves comes right out of the gate in Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And this is, it's, it's actually a really abrupt beginning to a story. You think about how writers normally write a story. There's usually some setting, some context. Gary, our wonderful storyteller, would tell you that if you want to tell a good story, you start with, what, the setting, what's, what is going, what's the, the, the place and time in which this story is happening? We don't see any of that. There's no in the days of King so-and-so. We don't even get a location. We can assume because Jonah is a, is a Hebrew prophet, we can assume the story starts in the, the, the land of Israel, but there's none of that. It's just the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, right out of the gate. Here is what God is showing us. He's showing us first and foremost that God's intent for us his heart for us, as we're seeing a mirror to ourselves, our design, what we were meant for, is first a defining relationship to live from. Because the first word in the story is not a setting, it's not a time and a place, it's the initiation of God. It's the word of the Lord came to Jonah, 
God introduces himself. God comes to him. And this is, we could get really focused on the content of what, what God says to Jonah and miss the fact that this is an incredibly relational thing of God to do to come to God, to initiate with God. Later we see that when Jonah's running from God, what he's running from is not the command of God, although he is doing that, but what the author tells us, and he says it twice, is that Jonah is running from the presence of God. And not running from the presence of God like, the, like running from the, the geographical location of where God dwells. It's impossible to run, run from the presence of God. It, a transcendent God who can be all places at all times. He's running from the relationship with God. In Hebrew, the word presence means both presence and the word face, the word for face, like what physically identifies you. And so what we see first and foremost, both from how God initiates and what Jonah is running from, is that what we're made for, what we're meant for, is a defining relationship with our creator who made us and loves us. That there's a a relationship at the heart and center of God's design for Jonah and God's design for you and me. And it's a relationship that's to be defining for us. Not just one feature of our lives, not just one slice of the pie chart of our lives, but the spoke at the center that turns the whole thing, the flaming center of our lives. Because what we're introduced to as the word of the Lord comes is it comes to Jonah, son of Amittai. And one thing that Hebrew writers sometimes do as they're telling stories is they'll use the names of characters, they'll play with the names, the meaning of the names of characters to tell us something about the story and about that character. So in this case, Jonah's name, Jonah, son of Amittai, roughly means Jonah, son of God's faithfulness. And the Hebrew writers drawing us to see not just that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and that's important, but it's defining it's, it's his very name. What he's meant for is to be Jonah, the son of God's faithfulness. What he's meant for is to have a defining relationship, the center of his life, be this relationship with the God who made him and loves him. What we're made for is to have the center of our lives be a defining relationship with our creator. Put another way, you and I are most truly us. You are most truly you when you're defined by knowing and delighting in the God who made you. And that is an important place to pause, that the truest thing about us, we are most truly us when we're defined by knowing and delighting in the God who made us. Because in a place like the South Bay, we tend to think of our truest self as one of two things. We tend to think of it as either something we find or something we make. We talk about either finding ourselves or making something of ourselves. So on the one hand, depending on our our personality or our generation or our family of origin or whatever goes into the secret sauce of our disposition, we might tend to think of our truest self as something we find by looking inside. The truest me is something I, I look inside, my feelings, my desires, personality, whatever, and that's the truest me. It's something I look and I, I, I look by find, I find it by looking inside. Or on the other on the other side, we might think of our truest self being something we make of ourselves through our accomplishments or through our experiences in life or what have you. The thing is, both of those approaches, either finding ourselves or making something of ourselves, end up being an inherently fragile way of navigating life. 
Take for, on the one hand, finding ourselves. If thinking of my truest self as something I discover inside, if that's, how I, if, if that's how I conceive of the truest thing about me, my truest me is something I discover inside, that leaves me with really shallow resources for dealing humbly and honestly with my flaws. Because think about it. If the truest me is something I look at and I find inside, what happens when I look inside and I see some good things I see my God-given disposition. I see some strengths that I can offer to the world. But then I also see some really ugly stuff. I see pettiness. I see, I see insecurity. I see jealousy. I see hating people that God loves. What happens when I look inside and I see ugly stuff? Well, I'm going to have to do, if that's the truest me, in order to make life work, I'm going to have to do one of a few things. I'm going to have to either um, explain it away Oh, that's not really a flaw. It's actually, if you think about it, it's really a strength. Or I'm going to have to blame it on someone else. Well, that's only there because of my circumstances. That's only there because my coworker said such and such. That's only there because, insert situation or person you could blame it on. Well, we just ignore it and don't deal with it and live a shallow, unreflective life. Either way, it's, a pretty, it's an inherently fragile way to navigate life. The other approach that we commonly think of of making something of ourselves, on the other hand, if we make something of ourselves, if we think my truest self is something that I accomplish, that I forge in the crucible of my hard work or getting out and experiencing life, that's going to leave me at the mercy of not only my performance, have I done enough? The answer is almost always no. At the end of the day, when we rest our head on our pillow, it's also going to leave me at the mercy of circumstances that I can't control. Because so much of what we accomplish in life was not us being awesome, it was us being in the right place at the right time. And so many of what feel like our biggest failures were not us being incompetent, they were us being at the wrong place at the wrong time. So we're gonna navigate life trying to make something of ourselves and build our sense of self on what we've accomplished or what we've experienced, and we're gonna be on a pendulum swing based on our performance or based on circumstances that we can't control. In many ways, that is very much my story. Uh, when I had a, a fresh encounter with Jesus when I was a, a senior in high school, the context of that was feeling disillusioned with the way I was navigating life. I was beginning to see the cracks of what I had actually built my life on, which though I had, a, a, on one level, I had faith in Jesus. At another level, what I was actually building my life on was trying to earn people's respect, trying to earn, I was living to have a rep, like, reputation. My whole life was around what, what people thought of me. And the, the way I thought I could get people to think well of me was by doing enough and performing well enough to, to be impressive. And that left me on a pendulum swing back and forth between full of being, uh, full of ugly pride when I thought things were going well and full of crippling shame when I thought things weren't. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's no way to live. It's because we were made to have the truest thing about us. We are most truly us when we're defined by knowing and delighting in the God who made us. Leo Tolstoy um, was a brilliant Russian uh, author, wrote Anna Karenina, War and Peace, some other books you were supposed to read in English class and just skimmed, whatever. Um, he, uh, he wrote in a memoir his reflection of, eventually he came to faith in Jesus, but before that is he had this, this crisis, this existential crisis. Uh, he'd been functionally a secular agnostic person, functionally an atheist, um, but really he was building his life around being a brilliant writer. 
and uh, the relationships he was building along the way. And he had a crisis of the cracks uh, that that way of navigating life produced. Here's what he said in his memoir he, as he came to this incredible crisis in his life. He said, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every person from the most foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which we cannot live as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? It can also be expressed like this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me doesn't destroy? It's intense. It's not what you came here for on a Sunday morning. You just, you know, wanted a little uplift and some donuts and, you know, on your way. Not the existential crisis of, you know, moody Russian writers. But here's my point. My point is, is when we try to navigate life by either finding ourselves or making something of ourselves, it leaves us cold. Because what we were made for was our truest self wrapped up in a defining relationship with our creator. And that relationship, that defining relationship with our creator comes with a way to live. Uh, it's you know, no secret, it's right at the center of this passage that God calls Jonas to something specific. There's a call to action and a way to live. He's specifically to go to Nineveh. And we're going to, uh, you know, as we kind of unpack this series and go episode by episode through the story of Jonah, we'll get to the gravity of that call. This is not, this is not a light call. It is, uh, it, it is an intense, uh, if you wrap your minds around who the Ninevites are and the relationship between the Ninevites and the world around them, uh, James is going to take us into some historical deep dive of what exactly God is calling Jonah to and what that means for the heart of God and how we are to play that out. Put that aside for now in terms of what God, the specifics. Suffice to say, there is a way to live out that comes from a defining relationship with God. Uh, loving God is about our affections and our emotion. It's, it's meaningless for me to say I love Becca unless what I actually mean is I love Becca. I feel affection for her. On the other hand, it's also meaningless if that doesn't mean anything in the way that I live my life. My, my grandpa, um, he was a uh, career football coach uh, and kind of like a tell it like it is sort of guy. And he was from like the hills of Appalachia. So he had this like really thick drawl and like this really gruff voice that sounded like he had uh, chewed tobacco for his whole life because he had. And um, he, uh, he used to say one of his big lines in life, and he's such a wise person, one of his big lines, and I'll do the accent just for entertainment value. His big line, and he would usually say this to a younger man, so this is hence the context. But he would say, uh, love is action, kid. That was his line. Love is action, kid. That's what he said to my dad when my dad asked to marry my mom, sat him down. I know you love her, but love is action, kid. And then he would just say that for the rest of his life. I think he was like, ooh, that's a good. I need to like keep saying that. Anyway, love is action. So love is, a defining relationship with God does have to do with our, our, our inner affections and our, our, the way we feel about God. But it, it's much more than that. It's how we live out. There's a way to live. And that's what we're made for. That's what we're designed for. That's what we see in the first line of the book of Jonah is that what God made Jonah for is a defining relationship with him and a way lived out that reflects that relationship with him, a heart aligned with God's heart played out in action. That's what we're made for. But here comes the but. 
The but in verses, uh, verse 3 of Jonah chapter 1 is God, God has this beautiful intent for Jonah's life, defining relationship, a way to live. But Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And it says it again later, a, line, a sentence later, from the presence of the Lord. Our lived reality, Jonah's lived reality, left to our own devices, is that though we have this incredible invitation of the way we're meant to live, life with God, life in his ways, left to our own devices, we try to make life work on our terms, not God's terms. We run from the presence of the Lord. And that's not just, oops, I made a bad mistake. Oops, I didn't, I, I, I didn't do the thing I was supposed to do. Or I willfully disobeyed something God said. It's much deeper than that. It's relational. It's fleeing the presence of God. Um, and it's interesting looking at Jonah's life and wondering why he's running. And again, we're going to get into the specifics of what he was asked to do and what it says about God's heart, what that means for us. It could be suggested that he's afraid. Nineveh is a terrifying place uh, in Jonah's time and place for anyone not from Nineveh. James is going to take you into the types of things they did to their enemies. It's truly heinous, some Game of Thrones stuff. Worse, (laughs) legitimately. I don't think that's it. Because over and over again, the story, what comes out of Jonah is not fear, it's anger. He's pissed that God wants him to do this. Furious. It's seething in him. Jonah's angry because God's revealed something to Jonah about his heart, about God's heart, and Jonah doesn't like it. Jonah says, that's not, the, that's not what I want the God I worship to be like. See, Jonah's issue is not really so much the specific of the command, although that's definitely in play. It's about his issue with God. And the question then is, when did Jonah's issue with God begin? Or where, where does it come from? I think, you know, in the story, it's like, oh, well, Jonah gets a command. He doesn't want to do the command. So he's cool with God. Then he's God, God tells him to do something, and he doesn't do it. So that's when their problem began. I think Jonah's problem did not begin when he ran. Jonah ran because he already had a problem with God. He had a conceived idea of what God was like that was not what God was actually like. And when God revealed something deeper of his character and his heart, Jonah said, I'm out. I'm punting. I want nothing to do with you if that's what you're like. (laughs) There's something, even in the prophet, the man of God, that was held back from God, that was still trying to make a God in his own image rather than follow God on God's terms about what God really reveals himself to be like. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13, I think, gives such a beautiful insight to this state of our hearts, the state of God's people's heart, the state of Jonah's heart, the state of our heart. This is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, the state of my heart and your heart, though we have this beautiful design of God over us and there's intrinsic goodness and value to every single one of us left to our own devices rather than satisfying our spiritual thirst in the the framework of Jeremiah on God himself, the one who can actually satisfy our spiritual thirst. 
in ways large and small, no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, how long we've been walking with him, each of us turn to other things to satisfy that thirst. Broken cisterns that can't actually satisfy. Empty wells that don't have any water to quench the thirst. Instead of orienting some uh, our hearts at the biggest picture, apart from God, and even on a smaller scale in the journey along the way, instead of looking to have our thirst quenched on God, we, we, we look to quench it on any, anything and everything else. Mostly good things. Mostly it looks really respectable. It's not just about sowing your wild oats and going crazy. Oftentimes we try to quench our thirst on really, really good things. Jonah was the man of God. Jonah was the prophet. Jonah had been used by God in some ways. Now, it's funny, actually. If you, when we actually meet him in uh, Second, Second Kings, um, he gives a bad prophecy, and then another prophet has to come in and correct that prophecy. So, I don't know, Jonah's a mess. God's just, like, bringing him along the way. Thank God for the gracious mercy of God that is for the religious hypocrite, not just the one we think that God shouldn't love anyway. It's not just about do you have faith or do you not have faith? Do you know God or do you not know God? Every single one of us in our own way has this tendency to try and quench our spiritual thirst in places that it can't actually be quenched. And scripture tells us that they're broken cisterns. On a long enough timeline, they'll leave us thirsty. So as we reflect on how Jonah's story is our story, we also have to ask ourselves, how do I know if there's an area in my life that I'm trying to quench my thirst in a place where it can't actually be quenched? How do I know if there's an area in my soul where I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get something from something that's, I'm trying to get from what is not God, what only God can give? I think Jonah's story gives us a couple of really helpful self-diagnostic questions. We just look at what's going on in Jonah's life and we say, do I see any of that in my life? The first question is this, toward what goals am I investing the best of my time and my skill and my resources? See, Jonah's anything but passive in this story. Like, he's putting money, sweat equity, planning, months of his life, risking traveling in the open ocean in the, in the ancient world where there's no Coast Guard. It's not like you get on a ship. Getting a ship in the ancient world was not like going for a pleasure cruise. It's not like, hey, my, you know, we've got a boat or my buddy's got a boat down in King Harbor and we're just going to sail out to Catalina for the weekend. This is treacherous. And Jonah's willing to risk that treacherous journey for what? for goals that are what's actually in his heart. Uh, we read a, a, story, a, a children's Bible to our kids called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in the story of Jonah, um, Jonah goes down to the docks and he says, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. And that's, that's exactly what's happening here. Tarshish is in the, in the mind and the imagination of an ancient Hebrew person. It is literally the furthest place on the map, the furthest place that they knew of from Nineveh. It's the other side of the world in their imagination. And so Jonah's putting all of his sweat equity, all of his skill, all of his time and resources into what's really on his heart. I want nothing to do with this thing that I've learned about God. This, and in this case, it's that kind of compassion that God has because Jonah knows all along, as we'll see later in the story, that God's real goal is to give mercy to the Ninevites. God, Jonah wants nothing to do with that. So he's putting all the effort into what's really in his heart. What, what's getting the best of your time and your, and your skill and your resources? What goals is it all towards? It probably is going to tell us what's really in our hearts. And it might be a way that God is lovingly drawing us to align our hearts with his heart. Another question is, what commands of God are the mo- are, am I most uncomfortable with and why? So it's really interesting. You think about 
this specific calling that, that Jonah, God has on Jonah's life, if God's goal was only getting the job done, God could have done it in many, many, many other ways besides asking Jonah. We know from 2 Kings, there are other prophets, many other prophets of God speaking on behalf of God at this time and place. It's not inconceivable that one of the other prophets would have been much more open to the, to the job, right? Much more willing to go along with God, to have mercy the way that God has mercy. Would have been much more expedient for God to ask one of them. Whole lot more efficient. God could have written it in the sky. God have sent an angel, like, yeah, I don't know, like grown a vine that has the words spelled out. Like in the book of Daniel, there's literally like words written on the wall that are a prophetic word from God. God could send dreams. God to, what, you name it. We could brainstorm, you know, I don't even know how many ways God could have done this other than ask Jonah, the person that is going to have a defined problem with this actual character of God. So why ask Jonah? Because God's revealing something in Jonah's heart. And in coming to the commands of God that we are most uncomfortable with, God might be revealing something in our hearts. God might be showing us a way that he's lovingly inviting us to see him and his ways and align our hearts with his. So which commands of God am I most uncomfortable with and why? Pull on that thread and it will take you somewhere really sweet with the Lord. See, there's a mirror to see ourselves in Jonah. There's also a spotlight onto God and his character and his ways, and here's how we'll land the plane. And this is the movement of the rest of the story, and so it's intentionally shorter here this morning, but um, we see what God's up to in our second but. In verse 4, Jonah runs, goes one ticket to not Nineveh, and then... But the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea in verse four, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And here's what we see, that we have a beautiful design that we're invited to live into and left to our own devices, we try to make life work on our terms, not God's terms, with God outside the center rather than in the center. God steadfastly and relentlessly pursues those who are his, but the Lord. And it might be easy in the way that we commonly imagine God to look at this and say, but the Lord hurled a great wind and think, oh yeah, God's getting Jonah. God's just going to smite him. You know, he's out in the middle of the ocean. I'm going to throw a storm at you. I'm going to slap you on the wrist. You naughty boy, you naughty girl, I'm going to get you. But is that the purpose of the storm in this story? No, if, if those of you that are familiar with the story, the whole point of the storm is to turn Jonah around. The whole purpose of the storm is to woo Jonah back to align his heart with God's heart. The whole purpose of the story is to draw jo- the storm is to draw Jonah back in to the presence of the Lord. The, the storm is not about God getting Jonah. The storm is about God wooing Jonah. And part of wooing Jonah is shaking him from being asleep. During this whole episode, and again, there's these situational ironies, the the pagan sailors, the ones that we're supposed to think are the bad guys, they're on the deck like crying out to the heavens. They don't know anything about the true God of Israel. They don't know anything about this God, but they're just like, whatever's out there, save us. They're the soft-hearted ones. 
And we'll see they actually are the ones later in, in a few verses, they're the ones that do get, uh, respond softly to the Lord. Well, the prophet, the man of God, the one who's supposed to be the good guy is asleep. He's a, God shows up, the pagans are awake, and the prophet is asleep. And um, God is coming to wake Jonah up. Not because he's trying to get him, but because he loves him. Because he's drawing him back into the presence of God. And this is what God is up to in my life, in your life. Whatever the circumstances are of any given season of our lives, whatever situation we find ourselves in, things are really good, things are soul-crushingly hard. What God is up to, weaving this all together, our story into the big story, is God is relentlessly pursuing us and drawing us back to him. God is, a, is drawing us to align our heart with his heart for our good and his glory. What God is up to, whatever the season or situation is, is relentlessly pursuing us. Not because there's always some big lesson. There's, in, in, the, in the story of Jonah, there's, a, there's an obvious thing that Jonah's supposed to hang his hat on. This is what God's up to in my life. I'm supposed to learn to, 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 to care about the Ninevites the way that he cares about the Ninevites. That might not be the case. There might not be a specific quote-unquote lesson we're supposed to learn. But in the broad strokes, what God is doing is wooing us, drawing us back to align our hearts with his hearts, to be back more and more into the presence of the Lord. The question is, do we see that as good? Do we see that as worth it? Do we see that as worth caring more and orienting our lives more on him than on anything else when things are good? Do we see his heart and his purposes as good in our lives when things are really bad. Is it worth it? Is that good enough? I remember um, in my early 20s, I had a stretch about three years in a row of really discouraging ministry on multiple levels. Um, some uh, relational stuff, um, some just kind of what felt like fruitlessness at the time. It was very, and um, some personal stuff going on in my life. And it was, it was just a very discouraging season. And I remember talking with um, someone whose opinion I really cared about, just to, uh, about what was going on. And, and I think I said something to the effect of, you know, I think this is okay, because I think in the end, this is going to result in lots of people coming to know Jesus. And this person kind of paused and he listened and he said, maybe, but also maybe God just wants to do something in you. And I remember thinking, like my honest reaction to that was like, well, that's not enough. It's not enough. Like I can, I can go through a hard stretch as long as there's like some obvious results at the other. I mean, come on, like I, can, I can do this if it, if it feels significant at the end. I don't want to do this just to like become more patient or something like that. That's not enough. Is it enough? And seeing it as enough comes down to seeing what God is behind the storm. What kind of God is behind the action to woo us and align us back to his heart and his presence? And we see that in this verse, and see that in this passage in verse 6, in the um, unknowing commentary of the pagan sailor who comes down to Jonah, verse 6, and he says, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And there's this really juicy situational irony here where the sailor has no idea. He doesn't know what's going on in the story at all. He's just coming, Jonah, like, you know, we got to just cover all our bases. Seek every God we can think of. Like, Zeus, help us, you know, whatever, help, you know. 
anybody. Jonah, who do you worship? Seek that God. He has no idea what's going on. We know as the reader, we know that Jonah's God is actually the one who's behind the storm in the first place. We know that Jonah's God is the one who's pursuing Jonah and reaching after Jonah in the first place. But the key here is asking ourselves this question. What kind of God is behind the storm? Is it in the framework of the pagan sailor, a God who maybe, perhaps, if we're lucky, if we, if we do the right things and jump through the right hoops and do the right dance, maybe will give a thought to us? Perhaps that, give, that God will give a thought to us, to the pagan sailor? Or is this the kind of God that's revealed to us in Jesus? The kind of God who relentlessly pursues those who are his because he loves them. The kind of God who, as the creator of the universe, the God against whom each of us have sinned, each in our own way, with our own special flavor of sin, each lived as if we were his enemies, that God, the second person of the Trinity, has come into his creation as Jesus Christ. And he's suffered the way that we've suffered, and he's been tempted the way that we've been tempted, yet without sin. And then he's gone to the cross carrying my sin and your sin on his back. Though that sin is an affront against him, rebellion, relational rejection of him in the first place, yet he takes it on his own shoulders and carries it for himself that I might be forgiven, that you might be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. Is it the kind of God who shows us unrelenting, self-giving love like we see on the cross of Jesus Christ? Because when we see that kind of God being the kind of God that's drawing us back, that kind of God that wants to align our hearts with his hearts, we see a God with whom we can say, it's worth it. That is what I want. I do want my heart to be aligned with your heart because I know that you love me. And I know that you're good. And I know that you're up to something good on a long enough timeline. And so as we close here, we're going to have some um, time of worship and reflection. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to have time just to reflect on whether or not God might be saying anything to us specifically. And as we do, we're going to take our eyes to the cross. Practicing the Lord's Supper, this is the sacred symbol. On one hand, it's symbolic. It, it, It represents what Jesus has already done for us. On the other hand, it's sacred. This is a moment to encounter the presence of Jesus as we remember his body broken, his blood shed for us, and what that means for us. The perfect picture of the unconditional love of God that every sin, past, present, and future is paid for in full on Jesus' cross. And when we see that, it changes everything. So let's take a moment as the elements are going around, the band's getting set up. Let's just take a moment to quietly reflect. And I'm just going to ask God to speak to us. Maybe some of us feel a specific prompting of God, something specific that God wants us to see. For some of us, maybe this is just a time of quiet reflection. We're not trying to manipulate the presence or voice of God or anything like that. But we just want space that if there's anything specific that God needs to say, we want to listen. So let's just have some quiet. In a moment, I'll guide us through taking the elements. And then we're going to respond in worship. So right now, let's just each in our own um, hearts and minds, the quiet of our own hearts, just ask God, Lord, is there anything specific that you want me to hear? And just listen and see if there's anything that comes to mind. So come, Holy Spirit. Spirit, would you speak?
God, we love you. Um, more accurately, we know that you love us. And uh, so we want to say that we love you too. So would you draw us into your presence? Would you help us to see your heart and purposes in our life? Would you help us to have the openness because we see who you are on the cross, because we know what you're like? Uh, would you help us to have the kind of openness to let you work in our lives, to let you challenge us, to shake up our box that we might have put you in, to love the way that you love, um, to be committed to truth and justice and goodness the way that you are. Whatever it is, help us to be open. Help us to have soft hearts. On the nights Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he passed it around and he said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus came physically in a body to be one of us, to be amongst us. He's experienced everything we've experienced, suffering, temptation, relational strife. And yet he's done it without sin. Let's remember a God who understands because he's got his hands down in the dirt with us as we take the broken body of Jesus for us. It's taken remembrance of him. And Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Jesus died in our place, paying the penalty of sin, covering us every sin, past, present, and future in victory over the powers of darkness and its lies. And we take in remembrance that every sin, past, present, and future are paid in full. Let's declare that over ourselves as we take in remembrance of him. God, we love you. Thank you for your grace. And we pray that the true story, the story that our, take, that our story takes place in, the story of the heart of a gracious God towards flawed sinners like me, would that story get deep into our bones and would it change everything? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me?
we just sit in that for one more second. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we walk in that truth that we are forgiven and that we are made alive and whole in you, Christ. Thank you that you are a savior who opens up his arms to us every time. Nothing's too big, no mountain is too big, no valley is too low for the love of God. So Lord, would you show us this morning as we go throughout our wake, the love that fights for us, that pursues us. Let it go deep into our hearts and our spirits. We love you, God. We worship you. We thank you for who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. If you're new to the river, if you're not new, I mean, I'm sure we have a lot of extra food, so go grab some food. But yeah, Bill's waving in the back. Um, go get some info. To that point, there are tacos. And especially if you've uh, been here uh, just a, a year or so, you get to define what it means to feel like if you're newer. But we would love to connect. We've got a new, newer uh, person's connection point. Stick around. Even if not, grab some tacos because we've got plenty. And uh, we'd love to meet as many as possible. So enjoy. Enjoy.